Right, you beautiful people. <laughs> welcome to the LSE, and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on Duty, part of our new series on something. Um, when I was a student 100 years ago, beauty seemed to be finished as an aesthetic category, or at least one that was preoccupying people. Um, along with the sublime, it, it, as it were, we were taught that it was a long time ago they talked about the beautiful and the sublime, and that was sort of over. Uh, on the one hand, particularly outside philosophy, uh, art particularly was interesting. The, the interesting became a kind of decisive category. And in philosophy, we were rather being urged to uh, set aside the beautiful and to look rather at the dainty and the dumpy and, and rather more sort of humdrum ways of uh, thinking about art and, 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 and aesthetic objects and aesthetic categories. But all the time, throughout all that, of course, nobody um, stopped saying that things were beautiful. And all sorts of things. Different things, different kinds of things. I mean, obviously, people and... Uh, people's doings and writings and paintings and their clothes and also non-human things, nature and uh, perhaps manufactured objects, perhaps even tools. Um, so I don't know if beauty is going to make a comeback, but it, there's a certain way in which it never went away. And uh, I was intrigued to see what philosophers today might be saying or thinking about this aesthetic category, which is a, a particularly aesthetic category, perhaps the aesthetic category. Um, and so we invited two people who really should know, uh, because they are together the editors of the British Journal of Aesthetics. And um, if they don't know, then we must wonder why they're in post. <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, on here on this side, uh, John Hyman, who's a professor of aesthetics at, uh, at the University of Oxford, fellow of Queen's College, you should know, and uh, Elizabeth Shellikins, who's a lecturer in philosophy at Durham, and um, as editor of the British Journal of Aesthetics, she should know. <laughs> now, they're going to have uh, a, a, what we call a dialogue. Let's say um, my role in this is uh, at, uh, sitting over there somewhere. Um, they'll talk to each other, they'll go through a series of things that they want to talk about around beauty uh, for about an hour, and then there'll be another half an hour after that where there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions or make contributions yourself, which I'll field and make sure that the contributions aren't too long. Um, but for now, I'm going to hand over to uh, John and Elizabeth, and uh, welcome and thank you. Actually, editing the journal can be uh, confusing because we do regularly get submissions about dentistry and cosmetic <laughs> surgery. Uh, but we thought we would start by um, picking a question uh, that has um, a long history or enables us to look at, uh, talk a bit about the, uh, the history of aesthetics, the history of philosophical ideas about beauty and um, the, the question that we thought we would start out with 
is the question of whether beauty can be defined. Uh, we will actually arrive, we're going to take a, a long route, we may keep you here for, for several hours, because I, I don't honestly think that an, an hour is really going to be enough. But we're going to arrive by a long route at some of the uh, points that Simon mentioned in his introduction. Um, and in particular, uh, some of the ideas um, that were current when he was um, a student in Oxford. Um, well, it wasn't actually hundreds of years ago, but the funny thing is that the ideas, or some of the ideas that he mentioned, are hundreds of years old. I mean, much older than you might imagine. For example, the idea that what's beautiful is less significant than what's interesting. Uh, that, that's actually an 18th century idea. It's, it, it's an idea that emerges at the beginning of the Romantic movement when artists and artistic creation and the artistic imagination becomes the significant thing and uh, forms and qualities that we admire uh, take second place. But as I say, we'll get, we'll get to that point and we'll start with the question of whether beauty uh, can be defined, because really I think the, the beginning of aesthetics, uh, the word was invented in the 18th century, but of course the problems and the questions are, are, are ancient ones, and the beginning of aesthetics, the, 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 the moment at which reflection on beauty um, moves from being something written about by poets to something that's also written about by philosophers, is the discovery, the really incredible discovery by Pythagoras uh, to, in the second half of the 6th century BC that the most concordant intervals, musical intervals, correspond to the simplest arithmetical ratios between the lengths of vibrating strings. I don't know, this is probably something that many of you know. Anybody who's a musician who plays a musical instrument will know it, I guess. Um, but the octave corresponds to the ratio 1 to 2. So if you halve the length of the string, you get the octave. The fifth corresponds to the ratio 2 to 3, and the fourth to the ratio 3 to 4. That is, that it was an, an incredibly important discovery, uh, not just in the history of aesthetics, but actually you could say it's a seminal discovery in the history of science because it marks the moment at which the idea became credible that mathematics wasn't just a way of regulating exchange or measuring plots of land. It was actually a scientific instrument. It was a way in which it was possible to discover some hidden order in the natural world. And the first, the earliest aesthetic theory is really based on that discovery because it's the theory that beauty consists in order, symmetry and proportion. And that was Pythagoras' idea. And you see it also expressed in uh, ancient Greek sculpture. Uh, and... This is actually something we were just talking about before we, we, we started. Um, philosophical ideas 
Uh, well, philosophers are very inventive and they come up with all kinds of ideas, but the ideas that gain currency are the ones that resonate in the culture as a whole, the ones that reflect cultural attitudes and taste. And, and I think that, that this idea, uh, the idea that beauty consists in order, symmetry, proportion, and can therefore be defined in terms of numbers, can be defined in terms of mathematics. I think that idea, which dominated aesthetics until the 18th century, for that long, it's probably, probably had the, the best, um, uh, the, the longest lifespan and the greatest authority for the longest period of any idea in the history of philosophy. I think that it really... Um, convinced Greek philosophers, both Plato and Aristotle. Anything which convinced both Plato and Aristotle was guaranteed a long life in the history of philosophy. Because it was so much, so perfectly in conformity with Greek taste. So, for example, Aristotle says that um, the male body is more beautiful than the female body. Uh, why? Um, Funny enough, I asked one of my students that question a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she said, well, it's because they're kind of better articulated, which was exactly Aristotle's reason. I was slightly taken aback. They said, well, that's what everybody thinks. I mean, it's, it's obvious. But, you know, even if you just look, if you, even if you look at a cup, a Greek cup, and you compare, for example, a Greek cup and a Mycenaean cup, they have roughly the same shape because they have a, a sort of, bowl at the top and a stem and a foot. But whereas the Mycenaean cup has this kind of smooth, continuous profile, the Greek cup is chopped up into bits. It's articulated so that the, there's the foot, the stem, the bowl. The bowl has got a kind of um, inset lip with a, a sharp edge because obviously Greek taste just responded to things which are articulated and uh, female bodies sadly lack this diarthrosis, this articulation. So they didn't like it very much, and that's why that Aristotle didn't like female bodies as much as male bodies. And that's why, as I say, I think that this idea became so um, so potent, so powerful. The idea that beauty can be defined in terms of numbers, um, and that there are challenges to it. Socrates thinks actually no, functionality is a criterion of beauty. Um, Plotinus thinks no, things can be beautiful that are simple and not complex, so they don't have a form, they don't have a structure that we can define mathematically. Things can be beautiful because of just their, their shininess, a star, light, gold. So these were qualifications or challenges to the idea, but it survived as I say, until the 18th century. The, the, the earliest expression, explicit expression of the idea that beauty can't be defined is by Petrarch, who says that beauty is a non seque, I know not what, je ne sais quoi. We said in French for some reason, not quite sure why. Leibniz said the same thing in French. And then, and this is actually, this, was, this is really one of the most fascinating ideas in... Um, in the history of aesthetic thought. Kant, who's really the most important figure in modern aesthetics, writing 
towards the end of the 18th century, at a critical moment, but also um, uh, he had, I, I think, a more profound effect on the subject, shaped the subject to a greater degree than any other philosopher has done since antiquity. He had, his idea is startling, extraordinary, because he agrees that beauty cannot be defined. It's impossible to devise a formula. It's impossible to devise a test. It's impossible to analyze the idea of beauty. So all of these ideas about the golden section and perfect symmetry and so forth can't be right. Because if they were right, then one would indeed be able to provide a definition in terms of numbers. But he also thought, and this is the really extraordinary um, combination of ideas in his philosophical aesthetics, he thought at the same time that even though beauty couldn't be defined, that it was purely attributable to form. He was a formalist. So how is that possible? How can you, how can you think that beauty is purely due to form and the experience of beauty consists purely in the perception of form. But at the same time, it's a kind of form that it's impossible to define by means of numbers. And, and his combination of those apparently incompatible ideas is really what makes his aesthetic theory so fascinating and so significant. And what he thought, and, and I'll try to express it as briefly as I can, is that the enjoyment of beauty is a playful exercise of the ability that we have to perceive form. So we don't actually perceive an actual specific form when we enjoy beauty. But it's rather, it's rather like if you imagine a kitten playing with a piece of scrunched up newspaper. Um, it's not actually catching mice, but it's kind of playing at the exercise of the skills which belong to its own particular genius and nature to catch mice. And when we enjoy beauty, that's a playful exercise, a non-theoretical, non-practical exercise of our peculiar genius for perceiving form. So that's how he managed to combine the idea that beauty just consists in form and that it's indefinable. And, and his conception of, of, of art, of artistic creation, kind of um, matches this picture of beauty in some way, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the, what John talks about in terms of this, this playfulness... Um, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to explain. It's, you, know, you can spend a lot of time reading Kant here, thinking about it. Um, but as, as John points out, if we, if we try to think of it as um, the exercise of our you know, pretty much ordinary mental faculties, if you like, or the mental faculties, the mental abilities um, that we use in ordinary perception, in ordinary judgment-making, in our ordinary way of relating and understanding the world, that rather than 
um, those abilities working together in a, in a fairly um, technical way, if you like, you know, absorbing some of the things that we perceive in the world, applying concepts to them in order to know what they are, very complicated processes that, that Kant talks about various places, various, um, well, all his critiques really. Um, what happens in an aesthetic experience is that these mental abilities enter into a kind of free play. He calls it that free play. So you get a sense, just the, the, the kind of the expression there, that there's a kind of there's a kind of light, well, playfulness, a kind of lightfulness, something kind of liberating. And in fact, as I think we'll come back to, the notion of freedom um, is, in, in various senses, not in the least kind of moral kind of freedom, is an issue that's important in Kant's understanding of aesthetic experience. The, the, this tension between um, the sense in which Kant understands that there's got to be something that we can put into words, if you like, there's got to be something, some kind of skill, something that we can, some generalizations, um, some <laughs> rules of thumb, if you like, um, as to what you know, what is and what isn't beautiful, together with this sense of of freedom, um, is a tension. Is, that tension lies at the heart of some of what he writes about in the first critique, and mm -hmm. and also is is very present in, in in his entire aesthetic theory, if you like. So to to kind of trans to move that discussion over to the question of the creation of art, we can think about it like this. We can think, well, on the one hand, you know, there are nowadays, if you like, there are art colleges, there are things that artists or that uh, people that, you know, learn about art or learn to make art, they can kind of acquire this as a body of knowledge. There are certain kind of skills, certain kind of ideas, certain practices, certain rules, you might even say, certain things that we can learn about art that makes it more likely, perhaps, to create a beautiful work of art. And yet, at the same time, it's just undeniable that there, are, there is no such thing as a rule for beauty, right? There's no formula for making something beautiful, right? <laughs> you can, uh, um, you know, deconstruct the most beautiful work of art you can think of and, you know, formulate various principles and try to go, you know, to a studio and apply them, and there is absolutely no guarantee that you will also create something, something beautiful, Right? So, for Kant, this, uh, the occurrence of beauty, or the, the presence of beauty, goes hand in hand with a kind of absence of rules, if you like. And that's, that's it's, it's a quite difficult idea to get one's head around, but it's just something uh, that's present, as I said, in, in his entire aesthetic theory. And some of you might know um, about um, something that, Kant calls the antinomies in all his critiques, but in the critique of the power of judgment, he calls it the antinomy of taste. It comes right at the end of a lot of quite dense and difficult uh, material about aesthetic judgment, or judgment of aesthetic taste, as it were. And it's just the basic you know, idea that we've been talking about here. Um, on the one hand, you know, there is no such thing as rules for beauty. Everyone has his own taste. We've got no proofs or demonstrations for what makes something beautiful. You know, it's in that sense a kind of subjective matter, you might like to say. Yet at the same time, uh, we have this uh, urge that we want to convince other people to see, you know, aesthetic value where we might see it or we might peop want people to just kind of 
perform the same aesthetic assessments or evaluations as we do. There seems to be some kind of way forward there. We can kind of discuss it. We can argue about it. Um, but we can't lay down any proofs. We can't lay down any demonstrations. So we're stuck in this hard place where we have a kind of strong intuition, if you like, that there is something about judgments of beauty or beauty um, that that is something that we can share. And at the same time, this absence of rules that he requires for his theory, um, that it's not something that we can, you know, beauty is not something that we can demonstrate. Mm. And, and with regards to art and the, and the creation um, of art, of course, for, for Kant, it's how are we going to get around this idea that we started off with uh, about presence of kind of rules or ideas about skills, artistic skills, and the creation of something beautiful. Well, Kant thinks that um, what we, what kind of artists do, if you like, is to be, um, they're kind of, they engage in this free play that uh, John was describing when they make art. And, um, you know, the simplest possible uh, way of thinking about it is an artist enter, enters into the space where he or she makes the art. As long as they're in this mental state of free play, the kind of mental abilities are in this kind of harm, harmonious state, um, he or she will be producing something beautiful. When there's some, some problem or some disruption or there's some kind of way in which the harmony uh, uh, ends or ceases to be a harmony or the free play turns into something else, that's a sign for the artist that he or she is no longer you know, on, that, on the right path, if do you, you think, like. Is, is this, yeah. Do you think that this is part of where the distinction between art and craft comes from? Does it, it feeds into the idea of artistic genius, doesn't it, as a, right. a kind of romantic conception of how an artist works? Absolutely. I mean, um, the sense in which the artist or the, the kind of the genius artist is the some kind of you know talent who just transmits something, if you like, who has uh, the ability to um, create something that he or she can't really explain or, or mm. formulate or express in words, mm. um, but somehow manages to to convey to us. And convey something that can cause aesthetic ideas, right. which is something that, you know, in contrast to other kinds of ideas, but that can only really be uh, conveyed or transmitted through beautiful artworks. And it turns the ancient idea of art on its head, doesn't it? Because in antiquity, mm-hmm. an art is exactly it's, it's it's a kind of activity which is guided by knowledge, informed by rules, in which you can be trained. Mm-hmm. You know, like the art mm-hmm. of the swordsmith or the art of the cobbler I mean mm. these are platonic examples mm. whereas now the artist is precisely art is exactly the opposite of that isn't it right. it's what isn't capable of being that's right. captured or defined in in rules that's right yeah. so it's um, it's you know it's a kind of you, it sounds nearly um, passive you know as a passive mm. process in some respects but of course um, but of course it's this this is the yeah, the artist is a, is a medium mm-hmm. for an idea which is basically the creation of a beautiful work of art. And the work of art, Kant says, that uh, you know, needs to basically represent nature mm-hmm. right, whilst being mm-hmm. uh, distinct from nature. 
So um, there's a sense in which art has to try, or beauty in art has to try to emulate something that we find in the greater order of things whilst being um, distinct at the same time. Can, can you just say something more about this? Because um, it, okay, it's one of the uh, really interesting questions that um, you find uh, in modern aesthetics, not in ancient aesthetics, but in modern aesthetics from, um, I guess, towards the end of the 18th century on, and, and, and it's an important question in the 19th century, isn't it? Whether... Um, beauty in nature comes first mm. and art imitates it mm. so beauty in art is <coughs> secondary mm. or whether on the contrary our appreciation of beauty in nature is really the exercise of a faculty that's cultivated formed by mm. our encounter with works of art so it's, a, it's an important mm. question isn't it that guides aesthetic theory or, or that um, uh, that philosophers engaging in aesthetics worry about mm. which comes first, which has priority, beauty in nature or beauty in art. Yeah. And it's an, it's an incredibly difficult uh, question. And What's the answer? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, well, I mean, people have thought different things about this, obviously. Um, you know, Kant talked more, mostly about nature. Um, art was important to his aesthetic theory, but in, you know, partly because of some of the things we talked about in terms of moral freedom, nature mm. is still, you know, the focus for his, um, you know, his reflections on aesthetic judgment. Um, then we have kind of Hegel, of course, who talks more about art, and aesthetics becomes more about the philosophy of art for a long time, until a seminal paper in the middle of the 20th century by Robert, uh, Ronald Hepburn, which brings nature back in again in the kind of philosophical discussion. So there have been, kind of, again, we have been kind of, uh, you know, trends in this, kind of, should we focus on nature when we think about aesthetic experience, or, or should we focus on art, is one of those um, kind of models of understanding um, dependent or derivative somehow on the other. Um, some people have suggested that there are different concepts of beauty at play here, that you can't actually um, think, well, there's beauty in nature, there's beauty in art. You know, which, how, you know, which comes first, if you like, or how should, should we understand one in terms of the other, that there are different... I don't want to say concepts or notions, because obviously it's the same thing, but that they're sufficiently different somehow that it doesn't really make sense you know, to, ask, to ask that question. Really. So, um, and then there are some people um, in what we nowadays call, now they call um, environmental aesthetics who will say, like Alan Carlson, who will say, well, um, the way in which we appreciate nature aesthetically is very is a very distinct way. But when we look at what he calls determinate objects in nature, so when we look at the flower, if you like, um, then we're doing that pretty much. Um, as if we were looking at a painting of a flower. Whereas if we look at a seascape or a sunset or something like that, then we're really you know, engaging in a form of aesthetic appreciation which is different from art. So there might, there might be gradations there. Um, um, and it seems um, you know, certainly true or right to me um, to say that um, it's not like some people have argued um, you know, in a nutshell, that you know, we learn to look at art in a certain kind of way. We call that 
aesthetic experience, aesthetic appreciation. And then we transfer that way of thinking about things to nature. So that in a way, when we're looking at nature, we're, we're always looking at it as if it had a frame or, or something <laughs> like that, right? Um, that, sounds, that sounds wrong to me. Mm. Um, but you do see that... Ha- you do see nature imitating art in, in the 18th century. Actually, I mean, particularly in England, because you see these um, um, English aristocrats who did the Grand Tour and fell in love with the Italian landscape and with um, Claude's paintings, coming back and having the grounds of their country houses remodelled to look like a painting by Claude. Uh, And that's... um, Well, it's not just a sort of strange, um, wonderful example of of, um, nature um, becoming an artefact and imitating more conventional forms of art. It's also, isn't it, the beginning of the idea of the picturesque and the beginning of the... um, Invention of important alternative aesthetic mm-hmm. values to beauty, mm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's the time when the interesting becomes interesting, mm-hmm. um, and the picturesque and the sublime yeah. as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, how I mean, how how important a role do you think that that multiplication of aesthetic values plays in? Mm-hmm aesthetic theory in is it I mean does it only become important when we're thinking about the dainty and the dumpy or (laughs) is the division between the beautiful and the sublime uh, it has a kind of antiquated ring now Mm. but maybe intellectually it's just as important Mm. a division in the history of the subject what do you think? Well I think you're right that the the division of aesthetic to think of the various aesthetic categories as basically mm. falling either into the beautiful or the sublime, that's, that's antiquated, mm-hmm. and quite rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's an issue there, of course, about how far we're willing to stretch the concept of the aesthetic in some cases. I mean, the idea of uh, a distinction between beauty and the sublime or the experience of beautiful things and, and sublime things um, is, as you might know, you know also one that uh, occurs um, in the kind of history of philosophy, if you like. And Kant, again, one of the most prominent writers um, on that topic. And roughly the, the distinction here, the philosophical distinction, is that um, when we see something beautiful, we see something which has, you know, to use Kant's language, a kind of pleasing kind of form. Whereas when we engage with something, where when we come across something that's sublime, um, then it's something altogether less delightful, less pleasing in a, in a straightforward kind of sense. It might be something tinged, uh, kind of an experience kind of tinged with, uh, with even a, a, with a kind of awe and fear and, uh, um, you know, an enormous an enormous range of mountains and the idea that it's, the, its enormity is just ungraspable intellectually and that we might get lost in it and that we, it's just something so much bigger than us. Mm. Um, so whether, whether the category of the sublime and that in, understood like something uh, along those lines, what Kant and Burke and others uh, talked about, 
whether that's an aesthetic category, um, you know, you might think that's closer to something like a religious experience um, than the aesthetic. Right. So but it becomes a sense... immensely important, doesn't mm. it? I mean, immensely important in the history of art and the history of, of taste. I remember um, there's a nice phrase um, by the, uh, um, the historian Peter Gay in his History of the uh, Enlightenment, and he says that the sublime is like a safety valve for the, to release the pressures of neoclassicism. In other words, the idea is you know, that, that neoclassicism is so constraining, that conception of beauty as a kind of um, formal uh, order or pattern is so restrictive that, that the imagination needs some kind of release, and that's where the idea of the sublime comes in. But you, you see it in particularly in 19th century art and literature. It does become immensely important. I think it's one of those ideas, I think this is actually quite a common um, feature of, um, of Kant's aesthetic theory. He takes ideas which are already present in British philosophy in the 18th century, but maybe a little bit banal, you know, like the idea that um, the sublime is uh, um, a response to things that are sort of slightly frightening, but because we're safe, we can sort of enjoy the frisson. Uh, and he, he transforms them by, really by associating them with his psychology, and they become ideas of enormous depth and power. And this is certainly what has happened with the idea of the sublime. As I say, it starts out as that fairly banal idea um, and maybe also partly, as Gay says, a sort of uh, safety valve. Um, but what Kant makes of it is very uh, extraordinary because he thinks that actually sublimity, our, our experience of sublimity is, as Elizabeth says, it's, it's, it's provoked by things which are vast and powerful, like waterfalls and the starry sky and the, the Alps and so on. But he thinks that the way that our experience of the sublime works is that when we have these experiences, the vision of these things creates in us, generates in us uh, an awareness of our own capacity to entertain ideas that transcend experience. Because we look at these things and we think of them as, as it were, finite symbols of the infinite. And that experience of our own ability to transcend nature with our imagination is what he thinks the sublime is really about. And the sublimity is therefore really not in the object that we see, it's in ourselves. It's our own capacity to transcend nature. And so, you know, you have an idea there, as I say, which sort of starts off in Kant's early essay on the beautiful and the sublime. You can see how banal the idea can be. You know, it's men are sublime, women are beautiful, Germans are sublime, the French are beautiful, <laughs> the Swiss are neither because they mostly make money and cuckoo clocks and so on. Okay. But, but by the time that he writes the third critique, the idea has acquired an extraordinary depth, and you see it, for example, 
in the romantic taste for Piranesi's prints of impossibly disorientating prisons. Uh, and you, I came across this um, uh, idea. I remember I, it was quite a short time after I first studied aesthetics, and I read Tolstoy's War and Peace. And I read, I remember the passage where Pierre has just discovered that his true vocation in life is not being a Freemason or but loving Natasha. And he, he, he goes home in his carriage and he sees the great comet that appeared in the sky in 1812, which Tolstoy says, you know, is kind of a terribly frightening thing for most people and seems to sort of portend destruction and so forth. But to him, to Pierre, you know, um, feeling very satisfied, very sort of delighted with his um, you know, new passionate uh, self that he's uh, created, discovered in himself, he sees this as a kind of image of his own soul. And that was, it's such a strange, it's such a strange passage, it's inconceivable that he could have written that without having read Schopenhauer. And, of course, Schopenhauer's idea is the development of Kant's. Well, you can see why that, as a, the sublime understood like that, as an aesthetic category, is rather you know, unfashionable. <laughs> now, I mean, you could see yeah. why yes, that would exactly. be the case. Exactly. <laughs> exactly so. Yeah. There was another thing that we wanted to talk about. There was another um, idea that we wanted to pick up from the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, or... or or another problem, question. Maybe we could um, move on to that now. Um, so, so in Kant's aesthetic theory, which we keep returning to because it is uh, at the heart it's of inevitable. modern aesthetics. Yeah. Um, in Kant's aesthetic theory, our capacity to enjoy beauty is rooted in our intellectual nature, in our nature, in our ability to perceive order, pattern, form, subsume objects under concepts, recognise what kinds of things they are by recognising their form. So it's rooted in our nature as cognitive, intellectual beings. But already by the time um, Kant wrote the Critique of Judgment... The idea had become current, uh, in Britain particularly, but actually the root of our sense of beauty is in our sexual nature, not in our intellectual nature. Uh, you find that um, expressed very clearly in Burke, uh, in his essay on the sublime and the beautiful, which Elizabeth referred to earlier. Um, it isn't... It isn't our intellectual nature. It isn't our ability to recognize structures or to do science or to see repeated patterns in nature, symmetries and proportions. That's not the root of beauty. The root of beauty is uh, love and passion, sexual love and passion, and, uh, in, uh, uh, and equally the more kind of... Um, uh, restrained, more uh, peaceful sort of passion that we feel, uh, passionate love that we feel for friends. 
And you also find in the 18th century, again, contradicting Kant, or uh, uh, expressing the opposite idea to Kant, the idea that the sense of beauty is not peculiar to human beings, which it is, of course, in Kant's philosophy. So that you find, for example, in Hogarth, you remember Hogarth is... um, Uh, the artist and and writer, who introduces the idea of the line of beauty, um, the source of the title of the novel by Alan Hollinghurst. Yeah, the line of beauty. Um, This is part of a rebellion against the idea that beauty consists in definable proportion. Uh, Hogarth thinks that the line of beauty, a beautiful line, is a kind of sinuous thing, which he says is like the line that you'll see, for example, a dog running along as it pursues a rabbit. It's the, he says it's the line of pursuit. And it's this kind of sinuous path. And, um, and that, rather than something that has a definable proportion, he thinks is beautiful. And he has there attributed the sense of beauty to animals as well because it's the same impulse, it's the same enjoyment of pursuit in animals and human beings that's at the root of our appreciation of beauty. So that's really fascinating because there you have, a, have the complete opposite that you have Kant's ideas. You have the idea that um, it's sex, not intellect. And the idea that it's something that we share with animals. It's not something that's peculiar to human beings. Um, can I say something a little bit more about just pursuing this a little bit further? Because it, it, it's very interesting to see both of these ideas picked up by uh, Darwin in his very, very famous discussion, now very famous discussion, of the peacock's tail in The Descent of Man. Um, you know... Darwin has this sort of important idea um, in The Descent of Man where sexual selection is given um, uh, a much more important place than in The Origin of Species. He has this amazing idea that the beautiful iridescent peacock's tail didn't evolve to scare predators. Um, It evolved to attract Um, peahens. In other words, it exists because the female has selected the most beautiful, beautifully tailed males to mate with. Um, And and that's really, that's a very interesting idea because, again, it it roots the appreciation of beauty in, in, in our nature as sexual beings and it identifies it as something that we share with other animals. Oddly, he doesn't make any attempt to explain how the female sense of beauty itself evolves. Um, and a lot of biologists, in fact, write about that today. It's become a kind of industry explaining the peahen's um, sense of of beauty and, and, and offering an evolutionary explanation of how that emerged. But you can see that's a very um, uh, startling departure 
from those earlier 18th century ideas. It's yeah. a very powerful idea, and I think, I mean, as, as John said, there's a lot of literature um, in the last 10, 20 years, in, and everything ranging from neuroscience to uh, evolutionary biology to social anthropology to, to all the kind of ways of thinking about the mind that philosophers might think of as more kind of empirical or experimental, as it were. And actually, you know, different theor- theories range, they're quite different theories from one discipline to the other, right? And uh, so, I mean, there's, for example, one way of thinking about um, the way in which the kind of the concept of mind um, evolved and, and become what we think of it now is that it's just part of uh, what some... Um, anthropologists call kind of our adaptive nature, right? So that you know, seeking out something that looks better <laughs> than something else is just part of of our instinct for survival um, in a certain way. And of course, then the notion of beauty that we have today is a very, very you know, sublimated, no, not sublimated, probably the wrong word, but you know, a kind of refined version of of that. Now, there's one. You know, possible problem with that, which is that you might think that beauty is pretty much um, equated with attractiveness of some kind, mm. and maybe that is that is certainly one you know way in which we can think about these things. Attractiveness, is something that you just somehow want to <laughs> to have or be part of or be part of you. Um, but as John said in stark contrast with some of the theories we've been discussing where freedom, where a certain kind of um, absence of grounding in anything predictable, you know, um, is absolutely essential to our understanding uh, of beauty. So you might think of these as really quite you know, in, in opposition with, with one another. The way in which, you know, beauty might, at the end of the day, if you like, be something that you can um, explain in, in, in basic terms um, and that might be rooted in our, in our physical animal nature mm-hmm. uh, or if you think of beauty as something which is rooted perhaps even still in our nature but in a different mm-hmm. kind of nature, if you like, in the nature of how we think about things. Well, it's, it, I mean, it's really important, isn't it, just to to be clear about the distinction between these two questions. First, uh, what is the uh, origin of the sense of beauty? And second, what is the significance of beauty in our lives? I mean, of course, it's, it's, obvi- it's perfectly clear that the sense of beauty is the product of natural selection and sexual selection because all of every human trait is the product, ultimately, of natural selection and sexual selection. But it doesn't follow from that that if you enjoy the um, uh, pattern of a snowflake or the uh, mouldings in the Alhambra Palace, that's a sublimated expression of sexual desire. It doesn't follow that's the right way to explain the place that beauty has in our lives. And it certainly doesn't explain um, everything, well, it doesn't say everything there is to say about why we find uh, beauty or aesthetic experiences rewarding and why we find mm-hmm. that they add to our life the kind of right. a certain kind of richness or value um, uh, to our life that would otherwise not be lacking. So th- it's true that in a way, um, some of these more uh, scientific accounts of beauty um, just state something that's obviously true. Mm. Um, so 
the kind of philosophical discussion, if you like, is whether there is something more to say in non-scientific terms or whether the discussion is, is pretty you know, closed, as it were, once we've, we've kind of traced this uh, linear, you know, kind of this, this kind of um, more empirically-minded uh, um, way of thinking about mm-hmm. beauty. Okay, I think we, we, have, we have to move on and talk mm-hmm. about um, this thing that, that um, Simon raised at the beginning. <laughs> um, that is um, uh, how beauty um, ceased to be the preeminent, predominant, central value um, um, among aesthetic values and ceased to be the, the principal... Um, um, kind of value to which art was intended to aspire. Do you want to kick off by talking about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, certainly um, it's true that when we read the various submissions that get sent to the journal, we get very few submissions uh, on, mm. on beauty. Yes, true. Although I, I, I do think Simon is right when he says that there might be a certain kind of return uh, mm. to the beautiful um, in art, but... Mm. Um, Personally, I think philosophers are quite f- slow sometimes to follow what happens. <laughs> you know, in the certainly philosophers working in aesthetics can be quite slow to follow what happens in the art world. Um, and generally, of course, it's it's no coincidence um, that beauty became uh, less of an an ideal to pursue in art making, or um, you know, the goal of all our kind of the ultimate what we were seeking out as it were in all our engagement or involvements with art Um, if you think about what happened in the art world in the 20th century Mm. uh, and with the rise of different art forms where uh, beauty just really wasn't the main focus of what artists were trying to do not just conceptual art but you know um, well putting the idea I think what a lot of different art movements in the 20th century have in common is that they moved away from anything uh, beautiful in terms of perhaps something that's, pre- you know, in the straightforward sense, pretty or enjoyable or nice to look at, right? Uh, and try to, as Simon said, say something or do something. Not, not necessarily contain a political message, uh, social message, but you know, some people even, I mean, some conceptual artists even thought of art making as a form of philosophy, right? So that they were, they, they saw themselves as what they were doing as on a par with what, you know, academic um, philosophers uh, did in, in universities and elsewhere. But I wonder, so, who, I wonder who was the first person to express the thought that um, we, pref- we should prefer ugliness to beauty. So I... I've come... Apollinaire says that in the second decade of the 20th century. I came across something very similar in a um, novel, uh, in Roderick Hudson, an early novel by Henry James, where there are sort of artists, you know, having conversations about... uh, pretentious conversations about art somewhere in Italy. And this one, maybe. Sorry. (laughs) Not not quite as pretentious as this, obviously. And it stood the test of time maybe better than our podcast will. But in any case... It was, uh, it, there's something similar there. Um, but I do, think it, I do think that this decline in beauty uh, goes back to the Romantic mm. period, doesn't well, it? Well, I mean, even uh, Marcel Duchamp, um, you know, 
I don't think he actually said this around the time he made the urinal. I think it might have been something he said a bit later, perhaps even mm-hmm. into the 50s. But uh, when someone uh, confronted him and said, well, look, I just, I just find the urinal fountain uh, beautiful. And uh, Marcel Duchamp apparently just said, well, I'm very sorry. You know, like it was a, like it was a failing. It was a failing. Yeah. And he, I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of artists in his generation um, thought of that. Of course, what, you know, in defense of beauty, you might say, well, it's wrong to think of beauty as some, somehow devoid of ideas or devoid of a point or devoid in contrast with the interesting, perhaps, as we were saying. Mm. You know, it's not as if beauty just has to be something that's pretty. I mean, you might think, um, I don't know what you think about this, but, you know, that pretty is a, is a very distinct aesthetic quality of a certain kind that really doesn't necessarily overlap with the beautiful at all. So that there's room, you know, in in the beautiful for ideas of the kind that some of these art movements were trying to, you know, put in focus. Funnily enough, the, the, the first challenge, the earliest challenge to the idea, uh, to the Pythagorean theory of beauty, I think, or at least the earliest that I know of, is uh, Socrates in Xenophon's Memorabilia. Uh, who is, the, I think he's the first person, at least the first philosopher, to relate beauty and function. And to say, he says, well, a beautiful javelin thrower is different from a beautiful wrestler. And, um, and the, the person that he's talking to says... Um, do you mean that, that anything can be beautiful if it's useful? What about a, a basket for carrying dung? And he says, yes, absolutely, of course that can be beautiful. And equally, a golden shield is not beautiful because it isn't adapted to its function. I think maybe the, the single most important um, uh, new idea about beauty uh, or, or reinvigoration of an old idea about beauty in the last 150 years um, isn't the idea that being interesting matters as much in art as being beautiful, isn't the idea that ugliness is preferable to beauty. It's, um, it, it, it's the reinvigoration of the association between beauty and functionality which is produced by the changes in taste that resulted from industrialization and, mm. and the... And the and um, the transformation of, of taste that, that, that occurred in the, in the second half of the 19th and the early 20th century. I mean, and it happened, it happened pretty fast. And it is, it's a very, very profound change. You know, Ruskin says that the principal part of architecture is ornament. And... Adolf Loos says ornament is a crime. And, and that's only a few decades apart. It's a very, it's a very powerful uh, transformation in the history of taste. And uh, as, with all, as with all of the philosophical ideas, the philosophers kind of you know, follow a few decades or a hundred years <laughs> or so best. later. Yeah. <laughs> right, and, that's, and you know, together with that, we see also a rise... Uh, of interest in um, 
kind of sub-disciplines, if you like, in aesthetics, such as the philosophy of architecture um, and things. And, you know, and that might itself lead to a certain kind of blurring of the already quite fuzzy distinction between craft and and fine art. Um, And that Mm. might be a desirable, uh, might be something that's, Mm. that's... that's desirable. Whether at the end of all that, <laughs> uh, whether there will still be a concept of beauty at play, um, in the sense that <coughs> most of us uh, think about it today, I guess that's a that's a separate um, mm-hmm. issue. Maybe shall we throw it open for questions? Or make comment. So I had a quick question when we were talking about. Um, Earlier on in the, in the lecture, I was thinking about Vincent van Gogh, uh, who in his letters uh, seemed to practice art a lot in the margins, um, and this mm. was early on in his career. Mm. Um, uh, was he merely um, looking for control or trying to find his artistic voice? Or, um, I mean, surely he still adheres to that romantic idea of the artistic genius that you mentioned. Um, but then we talked about art as being very spontaneous, did this practice limit his spontaneity? Was there still enough spontaneousness in his later work? Mm. Okay. Um, I, I've seen some of these um, marginal drawings in letters by Van Gogh, particularly letters to his brother. There was an exhibition recently. Was it in London? I don't yes. remember. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Um, so in some cases, certainly, what he's doing is um, communicating his ideas. You know, he's saying... I saw this, or I'm planning a painting that's going to be like this. And he was uh, a wonderful graphic artist. Um, I mean, his drawings are um, at least the equal of his paintings, and there were quite a number of extraordinary drawings in that exhibition, I remember. But I I think that this image of Van Gogh as... um, committed to the romantic idea of genius and so on, is exaggerated. Um, it, uh, it certainly isn't the way he saw himself. He said, um, my aim in painting is to be simply honest before nature. And he saw himself very much in the tradition of Dutch landscape painting, going back to the 17th century. I, I, I think that idea... Is, is partly attributable to the fact that, uh, that he was mentally ill and partly attributable to a sort of fantasies about artistic creation which were projected onto him by writers and filmmakers in subsequent generations. OK, we've got another one down here and then there, and then we'll go there. Yes, I just wanted to pick up this idea of, of beauty as function um, and just sort of try to sort of think is in how many sort of how broadly we can we can look at this term function um, I mean you can look at it in a very sort of you know I mean in the way that you described Socrates or the, 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 the modern architecture um, but it seems to me that perhaps you can also look at it um, if you put that evolutionary hat on the Darwinian hat I mean even our I mean I, I think the, the comp, I think the, the, the current view isn't it about the peacock's tail is that it helps display to the female whether the male is a healthy male or not. Mm. Um, so that's what, which is, of course has a, has, has, has a function, not, it mean, has, a, has a function in, in a more... It's conspicuous mm. consumption. Conspicuous consumption. Because but, ornaments are expensive to produce, whether, you know, you buy them in the jewellers or you produce them on your back. 
And even, even I think they've done studies of, of, of human beings' sort of sense of other humans' faces and, and mm. to what extent mm. that reveals health or, or, mm. or illness. But, it's, but I wonder also whether this, when you talk about Kant and this idea of our, both the, the free play and the exercising of our capacity to recognize forms, I think that's what you said. I think that's basically mm. what, I mean, where do those, can we look at those in some sense in a functional sense? Where, what role does the capacity to recognize forms play in the life of mm. human beings? And what role does playfulness in exploring these forms, therefore, mm. in, perhaps in terms of learning how to recognize forms, play in the life of mm. human beings? And it would seem mm. that it probably, we are, since we are such visual animals, um, that, and, and I don't know where neuroscience has got on this, mm. but perhaps they, they're telling us that actually the patterns in the Alhambra, I mean, do they're not just pretty, they do actually somehow <laughs> correspond to some way that our I'm sure they're saying all sense. of that kind of stuff, yeah. but don't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the neuroscientists haven't figured out how we can recognise a toothbrush, so I think mm-hmm. their ability to make a substantial contribution to aesthetics is a few hundred years well, away. I mean, the best, the best place to start is with, if you wanted to go that way, is to go with you know, scientists that understand the notion of function. You know, and that's not clear that it's always uh, neuroscientists are best placed to do that. Perhaps some of the areas we we talked we mentioned briefly, such as evolutionary biology or social anthropology, are better placed. Um, but an, in, to an do interest that. in joining the two sides of your story through Cat uh, that's being invited here—that that's that's been around for a while. Now, mm-hmm. how, how far can it be done? Do you think that you can think about? Uh, the Kantian approach as having some kind of functional significance? Well, I, uh, I, I, perhaps I didn't emphasise this, but I did want to say it, that, um, that Kant, Kant's conception of beauty gives beauty a very central place in human life because you know, uh, I... I I compared the enjoyment of beauty with a kitten playing with a piece of scrunched up music. It's about what is absolutely distinctive and central to, if you like, the central function of this particular kind of animal. We are cognitive animals. That is our peculiar nature and our peculiar genius. Mm -hmm. So it it extends from uh, recognising a face, an individual... Or a kind of object, a knife, a fork, a cup, uh, all the way to the most sophisticated parts of science. They're, they're all recognizing structure, order, mm. pattern in experience. And so Kant's idea that um, beauty is the playful exercise of the capacities that enable us to, to do that does indeed associate the sense of beauty with our absolutely essential functions as um, cognitive beings. But, it, but there are some, I mean, the distinction Kant draws between free and dependent beauty, I don't know if you're familiar mm. with that, but um, yes. there, there is a distinction there. Uh, what he calls a free and a dependent beauty. And dependent there is dependent, not so much on the function of the thing, 
as the function of... Um, well, I'm not sure the word function is right here, but a certain kind of dependency on what the thing is and how it does what it does best, or how what it should be doing, how it does that best, right? So uh, some examples there include churches and buildings with a purpose, if you like, um, horses, which are partly, you know, you know, what they do well is run in a certain kind of way. They have to be healthy in a certain kind of way. So I'm not sure the word function as we use it in, you know, in the more scientific uh, ways of approaching the topic is exactly the same one. But there's certain, certainly a kind of, um, 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 not limitation, but there's something about what the thing is, you know, that kind of sets certain boundaries for whether it can be beautiful or not. That's not very nicely, uh, very clearly put, but there is, there is space for that in Kant's account as well, and it's a very important distinction. Okay, over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in art schools these days, um, in, in both uh, practice and theory, we uh, very much avoid uh, the word uh, beauty, just as we would um, avoid the sort of effective fallacy of saying our likes and dislikes. And a key, you know, uh, if we're looking for a critical theory, we will look to German uh, philosophy, which puts art and uh, <coughs> values and ethics r- right at the centre rather than on the margin. And it seems to me um, a key figure for us that you haven't mentioned in uh, classical Greek thought would be Xenophanes, the idea that our views are projections of ourselves. For instance, his whole debate against Homer and Hesiod about uh, the gods. You know, we create gods and idols in our own image. And, you know, if we were cattle or horses and we had hands and could draw, they would look like cattle and horses. And that, when we combine that also with um, uh, sort of Protagoras and uh, you know, humans, man is the measure of all things, humans are the measure of all things, and Heraclitus too, um, it, ten- it rather pulls the rug from under uh, the whole sort of um, uh, um, platonic and uh, the whole, uh, you know, the whole thing about, about music, uh, the Samos, who, who is he from Samos, we were just talking about, um, Structure, proportionality, and music. Pythagoras, sorry, hmm. Pythagoras. It, it pulls the whole rug from underneath that, and um, it uh, this whole idea. We're, we're into the whole debate now, aren't we, between realism and perspectivism, or realism and constructivism, psychologism. You know, whatever word you want to add to it. Hmm. And it seems to me that the thrust for a sort of uh, uh, fruitful um, uh, art theory uh, today would be to take this perspectivist psycho- psychologistic approach but coupled with, because we've got the problem if everything is a projection we've got the problem of confirmation bias and always being trapped in closure and uh, Hilary Lawson was talking a lot about it the term philosophers use a lot these days actually is response dependence but the idea the idea that the appreciation of, of beauty and other aesthetic properties is 
not the perception of a quality in an object, but the arousal of an emotion in the mind, that idea became the predominant aesthetic theory in the 18th century. It originates before Pythagoras. In fact, the earliest statement of it is probably, uh, that I know, is, is in a poem by, by Sappho. You know, um, the poem which, which begins, some say that the most beautiful thing on the black earth is a troop of horsemen, some people say cavalry, some people say ships, but I say it's whatever you love. And that's, that's the very earliest statement of that, what you called projectivism. Or, um, but uh, if we gave the impression that that idea uh, had been set aside in philosophy, we gave the, exactly the wrong impression because the Pythagorean view, the objectivist view, um, was um, um, decisively overturned. Uh, or perhaps I should say, um, was overturned and the consensus has always been against it since. That's not to say that there aren't uh, good arguments for the opposite view. There are. They change from one generation to the next, of course. But the consensus has been in favour of one or another kind of response dependence or subjectivism since the 18th century. We've got quite a line-up of questions coming at the moment. something more. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how many of you are, are, are trained philosophers here, but I mean, there is, uh, okay. um, there's, there's a sense in which you might think, well, there are certain kind of properties in the world that are in the world in a more 
let's say, difficult to, you know, in a way it's more difficult to explain than others, so that, um, you know, size and shape and mass and those things exist in the world as tangible and we can kind of uh, just accept the way they are in the world in the, in the straightforward kind of way. And then there are all sorts of properties like, like aesthetic qualities, like moral properties, um, perhaps other properties more to do with how we experience things generally, right? That, that, that are difficult to explain, just you know, metaphysically, if you like, right? So then there's the question of whether we can, to a certain degree, or not at all, or completely, reduce those more uh, complicated qualities uh, to the more basic kind of qualities, if you like. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the, in the literature about that, um, there are different ways in which you might uh, go about doing that. Um, generally, people doing that are philosophers who are um, not so interested in beauty, but in other aesthetic qualities. But I think if we think of beauty as aesthetic, you know, as a, as a term of aesthetic praise, or perhaps the greatest term of aesthetic praise, if we think of saying that something is beautiful, that we're really saying something that it has a value to us, that we don't really, that we're not willing to part with, even if, you know, uh, some of the things we've been talking about, even if there's a kind of, there's also another, another side to the coin, there's another way of thinking about how beauty exists in the world. I think there's plenty of uh, interesting questions for philosophers to address about, about you know, why beauty matters to us, uh, the role it plays in our life, and something that we thought we might talk more about today, but we didn't have time um, to talk about, but the way in which moral and aesthetic value might interact and return to an idea that's, again, a Kantian idea about beauty perhaps being somehow a symbol of morality. Well, so, that, 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 la yeah. that <laughs> latter point, in a way, takes John's question on, on beauty as a sort of standalone feature or something which in some way is always bound up with mm. something else. Mm. Could, yeah. You could just mm. pitch in on that. I, I, yeah, I think that the, one of the uh, real challenges in, in aesthetic theory, if I was thinking about beauty, <coughs> is to explain why the enjoyment of beauty is accorded greater value or importance than the experience of dipping your toe in cool water on a hot day. I mean, why should one kind of pleasure count for more than the other? Why, why is it just the fact that, I mean, in, in medieval philosophy, you, f you very commonly find uh, where, where, where hierarchical categories of thinking were natural, you very often just find a hierarchy of senses. You're told, well, sight is superior to touch and taste. But we don't any longer, I think, find that credible. Um, uh, and so there is a challenge to explain why we attach more value to the experience of beauty than we do to what Kant called the agreeable or sensory pleasures, etc. Um, and... I think all of the plausible answers to that question depend on, in one way or another, associating beauty with other values. Um, so describing the beautiful as a symbol of the morally good is one very kind of bold kind of 
slightly numbing, uh, monumental example of that idea, the idea that beauty is a promise of happiness is a sort of much gentler, more enchanting version of the same thought. Um, and I think it, there's something right about it. I, um, Simon mentioned the, 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 the dainty, and Elizabeth mentioned the pretty, and, and I do think that there's something to be gained in aesthetic theory by, by reflecting not on the grand category beauty, but on the different forms that beauty takes. What philosophers in ethics call the thick concepts, the concepts which are partly evaluative and partly descriptive. So not goodness, but courage. Not beauty, but purity, brilliance, clarity, richness, simplicity, etc. Because if you think about those, if you think about those forms that beauty takes, then first of all, it's very easy to see, it's very natural to see how the enjoyment of beauty arises, not just out of sex, but out of um, a great variety of immediately, easily intelligible human desires and values for, for comfort, for peace, for... For love. For love, for light, etc. Um, and you can see, yes, I think the idea that beauty is a promise of happiness, which has a very simple sexual interpretation, but also has a much more complex interpretation where beauty becomes a kind of visible or audible resonance of a great range of important human values. And, and I, I find that idea very appealing myself. Thank you. Uh, one so, here, then that. So in light of this, is Steve Jobs the ultimate artist? Um, yes, I think that's a, the one-word answer. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Why did you say that? Because of the, the combination of the aesthetic brilliance and the functional brilliance? Yeah, yeah. that's what it, that, yeah. That's who I thought of. Yeah, right. When all of this is special. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, thank, uh, first, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, my question was about aesthetics, because you have been using this word a lot. And I wanted uh, Professor um, Heimann to uh, say that you've, token, you've talked about the aesthetic values of, beauties, of beauty, for example. And I wanted to know um, where for you is the limit between aesthetic and beauty, or is Beauty, just one category of uh, aesthetics. And mm. You were talking about that earlier. Uh, sure, but I can, why don't you answer, and then I can okay. jump in well, and address to you. Um, I mean, when, when Elizabeth was distinguishing earlier between the beautiful, the picturesque, the sublime, uh, about the multiplication of aesthetic values uh, in 18th century aesthetic theory, she was talking about exactly what you're referring to. Because beauty, instead of being the one all-embracing, all-inclusive aesthetic value, becomes one among several. Um, so that I think that's what you were suggesting. Yeah. Is, is that right? Uh, yeah, but I would like to know maybe if you could explain where the limit is between... How to distinguish between yes, the beautiful yes. and the sublime? Or 
no. is beautiful and the aesthetic. Ah. But I mean, there's one way of thinking about it, which is that the aesthetic is the, the kind of the bigger category that might might include um, most ways in which we engage with art. Right? Could also not do so because we can engage with art in many ways, only which some of which are aesthetic. But you know, we can use a term in a very very broad way, if you like. Um, to engage, to, to describe how we engage with art, how we engage with anything with aesthetic character, um, including uh, you know, beautiful things, as just one kind of aesthetic quality, right? So, but then there's another way in which to think about it, and I think there's less and less of that in, in certainly in the philosophical literature, which is to think of beauty and aesthetic as pretty much synonymous, right? So, as beauty as the highest form of praise, as I said, but also um, as something that, you know, that we should, that all aesthetic uh, endeavours should kind of aspire to somehow, um, or that anything which has any kind of aesthetic character is also necessarily beautiful. Things get complicated there, but I think, personally, I think beauty is just one kind of aesthetic quality alongside many others, and that it's distinct from the aesthetic as, it, as such. I think we can have aesthetic value or things can have aesthetic character without being at all beautiful. Okay, yeah. we'll move on yeah. if that's all right, John. Yeah. Uh, up at the back in the dark glasses. Um, just wanted to... I'll make you look. About, uh... <laughs> 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 Sorry, carry on. <laughs> 50 years so maybe of um, theory. Um, the majority of the principles you've been talking about in the last hour have been predominantly Aesthetic theories propagated by men. I was wondering if any have come through the last, um, well, last time, so, uh, basically female ideas of beauty. Well, I think you should answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, there's a distinction also between the theories of aesthetics and theories of beauty, right? Uh, so, um, certainly one philosopher female philosopher who talked about uh, beauty reasonably recently was Mary Mothersill. She wrote um, Mary Mothersill. She wrote about what she called Beauty Restored. She tried to reintroduce the notion of beauty. I think that was in the mid-80s. Mm. Um, but because, partly because beauty just hasn't been that popular a topic you know, amongst philosophers, there have been very few theories of beauty as such. And because there are very few female philosophers, really, uh, you know, even fewer still, I can't think. Susan Langer wrote about expression uh, and sculpture in the 50s and 60s as well. Yeah, but and, and, now, and you know, nowadays, if you go to a conference in aesthetics, um, um, it'll be 50-50. But, um, but remember that the very first statement of subjectivism in Greek poetry, subjectivism <laughs> about beauty... That sort of rather spine-tingling verse is um, a poem composed by a woman. Good. Okay. Uh, yes, here. I'm sorry because I'm a little bit outsider. I'm a medic and a clinician and a retired scientist, illustrator and painter. My uh, exhibition in London can rabbit from the beach be art for success years ago. Uh, but you weren't, I, I you weren't expecting a talk about cosmetic surgery. You didn't no. know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that sight is superior to touch and taste. I'd like to disappoint the audience here and recollect the exper- experiment done by Lord Winston, 
which proved beyond all doubts that the best offspring of humans is based on the attractiveness of scent. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the second thing is, I'd like to put a notion that objects which are bring with pain, mainly physical pain, are beautiful. It's again based on experiment done in Italy in 2011. The laser pain by laser was applied to people watching naked wall or uh, modern, like Picasso's paintings, or beautiful pictures, sorry, not beautiful, pictures by classical uh, painters, sculptures, and it turned to be that it, they changed the order of producing these pictures. It turned to be that when the classical beauty, beauty was presented, the feeling of pain dropped by 30%. Okay, some interesting observations there. We'll take that up. And one more thing. No, no, we have one. Sure, the writer is mentioned about uh, Van Gogh illness. In order to present, a, uh, to create a piece of art, you need right and left hemisphere, both working together. Can I just comment on the, just, just very briefly on the first thing that you mentioned. I didn't mean to endorse mm. the idea that sight is superior to smell or taste or touch. Uh, what I pointed out was that that was a, <coughs> a common view in the Middle Ages. And the fact that it's no longer credible presents us with a new problem, a problem of explaining why, if we should, um, we should attach more significance or value to the experience of beauty than to the experience of uh, pleasure through other senses. We're running out of time, but I think we might have time for two more if we're quick. Yeah, um, yeah I might be maybe sort of bringing uh, beauty and like purity together here, but I was wondering, and I'm coming at this from like a literature point of view, like and specifically maybe Shakespeare or something, but why, why do you think comes the idea that humanity has a sort of you know, a, a sick sort of twisted desire to kind of destroy beauty sometimes, to see it and, and maybe possess it and then destroy it. I'm not like a weirdo over here. <laughs> 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 what, what do you think that comes from? Like, you know, jealousy, for example. Like, I saw Othello the other day, and like Othello's supposed to be this beautiful... I mean, of course, there's the racism thing going on there as well, but I'm just wondering whether you have any idea where that might come from. Um, so the question is... Um, why do we sometimes feel an urge to destroy things because they're beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I. I mean, the, the 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 place where you see this, surely, where 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 it has greatest importance in 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 history is is in in iconoclastic movements. In in and and there, it's because of an attachment to an idea of um, religious purity because of the association of beauty with pleasure, because of the idea that pleasure is potentially corrupting. Um, but um, as for the sort of deeper roots in human nature of destructive impulses, I, I'm not an expert. But it's, it's the ultimate form of offence in a way, right? To destroy something 
that's valuable just for its own its own sake. And yeah. we see that when some archaeological objects or sites get destroyed, it's a sense in which we've lost something, you know, beautiful, but we lost something more than that. And it's it's difficult to explain why sometimes we want to do that to others. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes to ourselves probably. John, we've got to talk about this because it's, it's going to come up in question. So I'm kind of glad <laughs> that you uh, you mentioned it and mentioned it now. There's, you know, it's it's a question that um, goes back to Aristotle at least about whether you know beauty is somehow um, linked to virtue and to our moral characters in, in a certain kind of way. And mo- most recently, Colin McGinn has written about this. Um, that there's a sense in which, you know, as you say, these two go hand in hand. There's a whole debate about how that works in, in artworks, the in interaction between moral and aesthetic, and aesthetic value. But when it comes to persons, I think, uh, or, ca- or people, character, um, I think we're using the term beauty in a very specific way there. Right? Um, uh, so we're still talking about the beauty of the character, right? And we're actually thinking more in terms of uh, something that borderline moral already, right? A beautiful person is not a, someone who has a you know beautiful face. It's someone who has a beautiful personality, right? So it's in a way it's not surprising that if they do something um, shocking in a, in a negative way, that that you, know, you don't want you ascribe that kind of beauty to them anymore, right? Whether that can be reversed, I think that depends on you know on what they've done. But I, I think it is true that. If we want, to, if we think of people as morally excellent in some sense, you know, there is something very close to a, a kind of beauty we want to ascribe to them, right? And uh, I think I think that points to some of the issues we talked about, what John talked about uh, right at the at the beginning. I think there's something important there for philosophers to address. Right. Well, we've run out of time. I was reminded when we talked about the form and function stuff uh, of something Eric Cantonell said about football that if, if you do something very well in football, it will be beautiful that's part of <laughs> its beauty now I don't know if it holds for philosophy but you certainly did it very well we so tried, we tried.